Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is my brother, my captain, my podcast. How did it come to this? Paramir, the orcs have taken the eastern shore. Their numbers are too great. By nightfall, we'll be overrun. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweeting. Today's episode is Osgiliath is Burning, because Osgiliath has to do something, I guess. <laughs> but first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. I will lead it. I will lead the discussion on horror, <laughs> though I do not know the way. <laughs> Very good. Uh, <laughs> that's awesome. No, that is a perfect segue. Uh, um, yeah, cool. So horror, we're going to do horror today. We're going to talk about horror, um, which is, I, I feel like the kind of interplay between Peter Jackson's horror career, horror as a genre, and then the Lord of the Rings films um, as a kind of constituent part of the history of, of movies is something that like, I feel like we kind of hint at on this podcast quite often, but I don't think we've actually like laid the groundwork for like, what does it mean when we are referring to horror, uh, horror as a genre, horror movies in general, horror narrative beats, so on and so forth. Um, so because I could not possibly think of another topic, uh, for Oz Gilead that wouldn't end up with me just like spitting fire and behaving like a complete freak, um, we're going to do it here. <laughs> um, it's also because it's one of the more prominent, this scene features one of the more prominent references to a different horror movie. One of my favorite ones actually um and uh, it's otherwise just a, a kind of nice place to to talk about the mechanics of, of horror and for my negative nancy uh, uh to keep my negative nancy reputation intact it's also going to be where i do a little bit of shitting on these movies and peter jackson's career writ large which i'm sure we all love um but i guess you know to, to kind of get into this discussion we, we kind of have to go back to the basics of of horror um, and horror, not just as a as a genre, um, uh, as a general sort of arts genre, but also horror filmmaking um, specifically. Um, horror is one of these interesting things where I think modern understanding of horror, um, or by modern I mean like the last thirty or forty years, is is very drastically different to its origins. Um, I think when most people think of horror now, um, they think of jump scares or The Exorcist or uh, Texas Chainsaw. Certainly, my favorite thoughts what I think of as the kind of idealized horror anything, not just a book uh, or, or a movie, but anything horror, it's Texas Chainsaw. A little valuable insight into my brain there. Um, but it tends to be like the, you know, it's the Stephen King, it's the haunted houses, it's the serial killers and masks, it's the slashers, it's the zombies. Um, and these are all, of course, incredibly important parts of, of horror as a genre. But this is these are not the origin points of horror. Um, and horror was not always intended to be jump scares and things to make the hair on your neck uh, stand up. Um, it was about, it, as, a, as a sort of a literary movement, it was about interrogating the things that are fucked about the world and bringing those, throwing those into, um, into clear relief by uh, 
you know, as all fiction, by exaggerating certain elements and asking, you know, just asking questions, asking certain questions. And um, one of my favorite sort of early entrants into the the genre of horror is none other than Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is, of course, also one of the the sort of uh, formative uh, uh, pieces for uh, science fiction as a genre as well. And of course, uh, horror and, and sci-fi have always gone mm-hmm. hand in hand uh, for for the very fact that you know the the, the themes and the questions asked in both are. Uh, the same questions quite often. Um, so Frankenstein, if you if you've ever read Frankenstein, um, either for school or for funsies, um, Frankenstein is not you know what's lurking around the corner horror. It is a it is as much a sort of existential horror um, as it is uh, a sort of oh god that thing is so fucked up looking. And, and I think the the ultimate point of well, not I think the ultimate point of uh, Frankenstein the novel is that the the creature, uh, grotesque though it may be, is is not in fact the scariest part of of the story. The the scariest part of the story is that uh, Austrians are all freaks. Uh, no, it's that you know Victor Frankenstein uh, and science writ large has has not thought about the the implications of, of being a human being in a world when you get to play God. So that's the kind of origins of of uh, or the, the the sort of thematic and intellectual origins of horror is about. Um, you know, dealing with a, a rapidly changing world. Um, horror as a genre has always taken a lot of cues from the Romantic movement, which is why I think it fits in so so brilliantly with the Lord of the Rings. Um, and and it has often used the sort of language of the sublime. Um, it is it is quite often not a genre that is concerned with answering the hows and whys. It's um, asking the what the fuck and how the fuck did we get here and what the fuck do we do now um and and that's sort of the differentiation the demarcation line between between horror and sci-fi um as we see horror mature as a genre uh, there are the gothic horrors uh, if you've ever read uh jane austen's northanger abbey uh the the gothic horrors and their devastating moral impact on young women is uh parodied satirized beautifully in in northanger abbey uh there's uh, a whole sort of flourishing genre of um things that go bump in the night and also people shagging uh that goes hand in hand and of mm-hmm. course sex and horror have always been uh the the fondest of friends um until we get to uh, the age, the high age of, of theater, uh, and this is the, the sort of Belle Epoque, uh, so this is, you're thinking here, the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s, this is when Broadway is really establishing itself, the West End is having its sort of um, first kind of uh, stretch into the light of civility. It's not just that, like the opera and and uh, and plays and musicals are are either for the ultra rich to have performed in their own homes or for the ultra sort of poor and the the scamps of the earth <laughs> to go uh, in between, you know, sucking and fucking and doing other horrible things like drinking gin. Um, there is a sort of genteel sheen added to uh, Broadway, and and the middle classes really start to get interested in it. There's not quite the same moral panic about it. And it, of course, becomes this nexus point for adaptation. Um, and this is crucial to understanding the the sort of way that horror as a film genre establishes itself. Um, there was a huge market, particularly on Broadway, for things like adaptations of books like Frankenstein and Dracula um, and uh, a whole sort of cottage industry of turning out these uh, super tense, uh, super spooky uh, adaptations of, of these novels. Um, Broadway certainly loved Dracula uh, as, as, a, as a book. Uh, they loved ad- adapting that. Um, and so by the time cameras were invented, video cameras were invented, uh, and, and cinema was really starting to pick up uh, in its own right as, as a medium, um, there were people who naturally wanted to do horror movies. And the places they had to look for these horror movies were not 
directly the books. Of course, all of these people, all of these filmmakers had read these these books, but they couldn't be sure of the viability of stories like Frankenstein and stories like Dracula if it had not been for Broadway. And and film studios are notoriously conservative and were notoriously conservative, particularly around the issue of, of monster movies and horror movies, which uh, I should, as an aside here, say horror as a genre was not named by the filmmakers who helped to to build it. Horror actually came from the British middle class uh, writing into newspapers, <laughs> bitching and moaning about uh, the movies that constituted horror movies. These were typically like the universal monster movies. Um, and uh, British, the British middle pub, uh, middle class, the British uh, reading public and film watching public uh, will play a, an outsized role in the history of horror, uh, horror movies, uh, and the British government through its ban of video nasties and the introduction of BBFC, the the rating board, uh, is kind of. As these things go in history, uh, by being so against the concept of horror movies, ended up kind of uh, jacking up the, the the sort of value and allure. Anyways, back to early 1910s. Uh, <laughs> horror movies, uh, horror directors who are not yet horror directors are looking to the plays that have succeeded on Broadway. And Dracula and Frankenstein are chief among these. And so the Universal Monster movie is born. And was incredibly successful because it turns out people really like this shit. Uh, and they're grew, despite the sort of commercial viability of these monster movies, there grew to be uh, almost an immediate sort of moral uh, pushback against horror movies because uh, movies in general were a bit crass uh, and a bit morally sort of um, loose. Uh, the Hayes Code, of course, is introduced in the 1930s uh, and it all goes to shit from there. Um, but horror movies were really the epitome of all of this. There's sex, there's drugs, there's not quite rock and roll, but jazz, uh, and there's murder on screen and and all of these awful things that you know no good person should ever lay their eyes on, and certainly not in in film. Um, and and horror remains for the next. 50, 60, I would actually say 100, 110 years, uh, an outsider genre. Um, genre pieces in general are not respected by Hollywood. We've, we've talked about this on this podcast before. If, if you are anything other than like shitty Oscar bait about like, I don't know, uh, in 20 years, it'll be like Judy Dench's cat is a biopic or whatever the fuck. If, if you uh, trend outside of those kind of very tight confines, um, Hollywood doesn't like it. And, and the sort of acting and, and cinematic establishment, not a big fan. So, so horror has always been a, a sort of outsider genre, um, and it was also a very cheap and easy way for people to get involved in uh, in filmmaking. Um, so, you know, there's the kind of Flash Gordon school, the ILM school of getting into filmmaking by by doing, you know, uh, action figures, doing stop motion, um, and uh, kind of taking cues not just from from Flash Gordon, but also the the original Godzilla movies, which are also monster movies, for how to do these massive action scenes. But there's also the, the sort of um, <laughs> corn flour, corn starch, and red uh, red food coloring approach to filmmaking, and that uh, you can stab a Barbie doll to death and and quite easily engineer it so that it spurts blood uh, out uh, on on your frame, and that's a really cheap way to make some compelling uh, movies. Which is of course how uh, Sam Raimi, who we'll talk about a bit more in this, got his start in in filmmaking uh, as as a wee lad. Um, so horror has always been this very maligned genre, even now. Um, Jamie Lee Curtis just recently got nominated for an Oscar, and, and she said, and I thought it was very good 
that she pointed this out, that she had spent her entire career doing, doing horror movies. She was the final girl uh, from, a, from a whole family of mm-hmm. final girls, and she never expected to get nominated for an Oscar. And and that, you know, as shocking as it is, as it is because we all love Jamie Lee Curtis, like, is very much where the industry is at. Even the rise of things like A24 as a production company um, have not quite broken Hollywood's uh, kind of um, approbation towards uh, disapprobation, rather towards towards horror movies, um, and and even the kind of high genre things. Ari Aster's movies uh, are a good example of this. Robert Eggers' movies, another good example. Um, even those kind of prestige horrors have not been able to break this kind of sheen of horror is not a is not true cinema. It's not true art. Um, and this is the this is the 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 sort of critical mindset that governed uh, m- most of the mid century uh, of Hollywood, and is of course the mindset that uh, uh, one Peter Jackson would have been firmly aware of as he he um, matured in his artistic life, and it is of course um, his where he has spent most of his career before and after uh, the Lord of the Rings. Um, and and we'll get into sort of more of Peter Jackson's kind of uh, horror legacies, horror heritages. But one of the parallels I really, really want to draw right here is the struggle of horror as a genre to both be born and be gain respect within its artistic community, artistic critical community, to the similar struggle of fantasy as a genre to grow, be born, and then gain artistic and critical respect within its critical community. Um, and, and I raised this point because uh, J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> wrote an essay called On Fairy Stories, where he essentially argues not just for the existence of a distinct genre that is fantasy, but also for the literary and critical merit of fantasy as a genre, not just as something for kids, but as something for all readers to engage in. And so just as much as horror was attempting to be, um, uh, uh, attempting to establish itself, um, and this is the genre in which Peter Jackson comes of age as a filmmaker, um, uh, fantasy as a genre um, truly came of age and was born and came of age through uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, no, that's a great comparison between horror and fantasy. Um, I hadn't really thought about that before, but they are kind of, quote unquote, outsider or at one point were considered outside of the mainstream of cinema. Um, I think horror kind of, um, it still has, a, you know, a connotation amongst the discourse. But I feel like with stuff in the 70s, like The Shining um, and maybe before that with like Psycho and some of Hitchcock's work, but then Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, various John Carpenter films like Halloween and The Thing. And granted, some of those movies were not appraised until well after their release. But I feel like those were ones that kind of put horror on the map. And then Lord of the Rings as films kind of put fantasy as a movie thing really on the map. Um, outside of like, you know, Star Wars and space fantasy, I guess. And I think one difference I kind of see is the horror that I watch, which is very, very minimal. I do not like to be scared or to watch scary things. Uh, often the ones I most respond to are ones that make me feel like I'm being encroached upon or being boxed in or stuck in a space. Whereas with fantasy, what I'm looking for is something that feels expansive, like there's so much else going on, um, as opposed to that restrictive feeling, it's feeling for more, more expansion. And that might explain why horror kind of got into the mainstream a little quicker than fantasy did in terms of cinema, just because based on budgets and movie technique, you could create the sense of being encroached upon or being boxed in or being trapped uh, much quicker before you can create like 
Middle Earth on screen in any kind of proper way. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, and I think it is the I'm, I'm glad you bring up the claustrophobia element of it as well, because it, this, this is also a very good segue into the some of the more batshit opinions I think I'm going to share this episode. Um, but um, horror has always been the, the low budget horror has always been the best horror. Um, I, I, you know, Kubrick's uh, The Shining is, I think, one of these things that kind of stands out from the pack for the fact that it was not done literally on two cents and a, a bit of lint from someone's mm-hmm. back pocket. Um, but but so many of the other mainstay horror movies, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of my favorites, is a great example of this. All of Sam Raimi's <laughs> movies uh, are an excellent example of this. Um, and the British 80s, uh, not just things like Hammer Horror, uh, which I feel like I need to dedicate an entire episode to talking about their influence, mm-hmm. not just because of Peter Cushing and and Star Wars, um, but because of Christopher Lee's entire fucking career uh, is Hammer Horror. Um, all of these things, you know, uh, Hammer Horror, uh, the the British uh, rise of, of British horror in the 80s, things like Hellraiser, um, these are all things that are done with no money. And it is the fact of their no money that I think establishes um, horror so well and it, it makes it so beloved because... Whereas fantasy, you have to take these specific steps to make the characters relatable because they're in situations that are distinct, uh, totally distinct to our day-to-day situations. Um, for anybody who's been in, you know, the American South and driven around, the opening of Texas Chainsaw, or even, you know, the Eastern Shore of Maryland, uh, the the opening of Texas Chainsaw is intimately familiar. There's no part of that that doesn't resemble um, something that, you know, the average Joe uh, in Dixie could, could, could live through. Or mm. if you've seen Hellraiser, you know, walking through 1980s, uh, you know, Northwest 1980s London. Sure, it doesn't look like that now, but it is incredibly recognizable. And that's because these guys were just fucking carrying these cameras around uh, where they lived and filming this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting because we often on this podcast sort of make references to um, Peter Jackson's horror, not training per se, but like sort of horror bona fides um, and either places where it would have been great to have let those things shine through or places where it's very obvious that they're shining through. Um, and and Lord of the Rings, as you say, is in so many ways kind of antithetical to that that claustrophobic genre of of horror. Um, and, and I think this is one of these things where I'm just going to I'm just going to have to come out with the batshit crazy take and then we'll we'll pick up the pieces and go from there. Um, but I think there is in the Lord of the Rings, the genesis of almost everything that is kind of wrong with the modern film industry. Um, and it gets away with it because it's the Lord of the Rings movies and they're so good. But there is so much of the kind of reference without um, clear purpose, uh, clarity of purpose or, or clear thought that guides the the horror references that show up throughout the lord of the rings um we're gonna get to in uh this episode we're gonna get to one of my favorite references but it is also an entire scene that i think is fucking worthless that is basically built around making this reference and it doesn't help the narrative and it doesn't help the tension and it doesn't really do anything except for let us go oh i know poltergeist i've seen poltergeist before um and though peter jackson comes from this long tradition of um horror movies uh, and horror directors and being a fan of horror i don't actually think on on sort of um reconsideration very much of that horror training actually shines through except for in these references 
And and despite that kind of knock to it, because I am a huge horror fan, I still think that The Lord of the Rings is in some ways a very important step for horror as a genre, though it is not horror as a genre, because Peter Jackson is taking these sort of whole cloth references to horror, Helm's Deep and Army of Darkness, uh, Poltergeist and Osgiliath. Uh, we've got, uh, what, what's the other one? There's another big one. Oh, oh my God. In uh, the extended edition of Return of the King, uh, the dude with the teeth from Hellraiser is literally the mouth of Sauron. Um, he takes these and sticks them um, literally side by side in some cases with references to the classical film canon. So um, in, the, in Return of the King, uh, the entire sequence of Sam and Frodo and Gollum seeing uh, Black Gate, the Black Gate for the first time is just uh, the Wizard of Oz. And, and there are some fans out there who have put the two scenes side by side and it is like frame identical. And so by putting these references to horror next to these these critical mainstays like the Wizard of Oz, Peter Jackson is making an argument for the the legitimacy and and rightfulness righteousness of horror as a as a as a valuable and worthwhile genre in the same way that you know movie musicals or movie dramas are and and though I don't think that he in in the breadth of the Lord of the Rings draws on the horror you know toolkit quite as much as he should or in the ways that he should um, and sometimes when he does he does it in the wrong way um, this is still I think the Lord of the Rings is still an important document for saying look guys uh, a horror movie can be just as good as as the Wizard of Oz or or as Ben Hur. Hmm, that's that's a lot to chew on. Um, I agree with the parts that are pro the Lord of the Rings movies, <laughs> and I'm against the parts that are against the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, I, I really wonder, um, not questioning your opinion at all, but if you had saw these, or seen these, rather, in uh, 2001, 2, and 3, if that might change your opinion on it, because I feel like pop culture now, when a movie is clearly referencing another movie and what it's doing, it's much more cloying and obvious about it. Whereas it was just kind of part of, like, I feel like the, the reason, like you're, you're saying, like the whole they've come, they're here thing is from Poltergeist. Um, I don't think it's really meant to be an e I don't know exactly how I want to say what it is, yeah. but it's like, it's not meant for a BuzzFeed article to say the Poltergeist reference you missed in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, I think it was just part of, I would say, the collective body of work that informed Peter Jackson's like actual tastes um, and that both consciously and unconsciously makes his way into his work. Um, like, I think the Wizard of Oz shot very much is specifically supposed to be the Wizard of Oz shot. Um, even in Fellowship of the Ring, when the Nazgul is leaning over the tree trunk and sniffing around for the hobbits, um, that's a straight lift from the Bakshi version of The Lord of the Rings. Yep. Um, so I I feel like these are all things that are kind of, I don't know, like it was just kind of the form or how they did that. And I don't know if he was actually looking to like, say, pay homage to it in that way that we would think of paying homage to it now where um, every movie must tell you that it, oh, this is actually some 70s thriller all dressed up with superheroes or something. Um, it's just kind of a little different than how we talk about it now. Yeah. So, so I, like, I take that point. I definitely take that point. I, I think, like, I think what the, the thing is for me, I think I would not have come to that conclusion if I'd seen it 2001 to 2003. Um, for sure, I would not have come to that conclusion by myself. But I think if someone had said it to me, I would have taken it as like agreed with it. And I think the reason is, is because the horror references 
for me, open up this question of, well, if this is informed by horror in this way, well, then why wasn't it informed by horror in X, Y, and Z ways? And I think, like, in in, in particular, the case of Sam Raimi, uh, and all the Sam Raimi references all the way throughout The Lord of the Rings, and I'm just now looking at my notes where I've written the words, Frodo as heir to Bruce Campbell's Ash, the sort of roughed up final girl, and God help me, I have no fucking clue what I was trying to say <laughs> with that. I'll figure that one out as I go. Um, but, you know, there, there are a lot of things that Sam Raimi does, uh, particularly in Ar- Army of Darkness, um, but then he then translated to The Amazing Spider-Man, or not The Amazing Spider-Man, the Sp- yeah, The Amazing Spider-Man movie. They're too many. No, no, you had it. Yeah, it's just Spider Man. It's just Spider Man. Ah, 2000 Spider Man. <laughs> the Tobey Maguire Spider Mans, whatever the hell they are. Amazing Spider Man and Andrew Garfield. Right. Okay. Um, there are things that he takes, like Sam Raimi takes from his career as a horror director and puts into the Spider Man movies, the, the 2000 Spider Man movies, um, that are very clear, that like are very clearly informed by the fact that he has learned how to deal with certain struggles and certain narrative problems um, through his horror training. Whereas I think. The horror references in The Lord of the Rings sometimes make me go, okay, well, this is a reference to, for example, Poltergeist here. Okay, so we know that Peter Jackson is aware of Poltergeist. Okay, so there's this problem in Poltergeist that is common to The Lord of the Rings, and um, and Poltergeist solves it in this way, and The Lord of the Rings solves it in another. But why did... Like, but the Lord of the Rings way of solving this problem was less successful. So why wasn't that done? And that for me is what those references do is, is it, is it's a way of being like Peter Jackson as a director is aware of Tobe Hooper, is aware of Sam Raimi, is aware of Stanley Kubrick as directors. So if he was aware of these directors, why was it that he just made the sort of script reference to it instead of learning the kind of strategy, the strategic um, uh, solutions <laughs> to get a little corporate and up, up in this bitch, uh, the strategic solutions that these directors had. And like, of course, the necessary disclaimer here is this is like the most nitpicky of nitpicky things to, to possibly do. But like, I, I fucking love horror. Um, and so like seeing something that is, you know, we talked about this in uh, the uh, Wolves of Isengard, I think, like imagine if they'd done instead of the, the you know, wolves the orc fighting scene and um, they'd done something slightly more uh in inspired by that kind of history or not history uh horror tradition that's what these kind of references open up to me instead of like you know when these things make a reference now and it's just like a director trying to promise that he's not a fucking moron even if he is um i don't think this is like peter jackson trying to be like i'm not a fucking moron more of what it says to me is like okay you're not a fucking moron. So say more, do more. And I think that's the kind of fun conversation in the the horror references in the Lord of the Rings tag on the BuzzFeed channel. I guess uh, to better make my argument, I have to walk back like 60 episodes of how I've been describing the Lord of the Rings. Because I think I've actually done myself a disservice just calling these action films all throughout. Um, and I... They're definitely action-y films, um, and they have multiple hours of action in them. But I really kind of like how you were saying there's like the horror references, but alongside also like Wizard of Oz and Lawrence of Arabia references. Um, There are like there are multiple genres kind of at play. Like I know we bag on some of the love story stuff, but you know Aragorn and Arwen, that's like a part romance. Mm -hmm. There's a bunch of action stuff, Um, and then there are um, like other kinds of stories being told, like. the last episode we got, I can't do uh, episode order because we are, we record so far ahead. Um, like the whole Hel- Helm's Deep preparation episode, like that's like not an action, you know, 
scene that's like you know 30 minutes of a movie that has no action in it whatsoever um it's more of a like a melodrama kind of a shakespearean stage play you can imagine bernard hill is playing richard the third or something like that instead of playing theoden uh so i think there is kind of a melding of genres and for me i don't think i put like the horror at say frodo saying they've come there here even though that's clearly a poltergeist reference like he's referencing poltergeist like where i'm measuring Peter Jackson's horror like abilities is more in say the cave of Shelob, yeah. like actual sequences dedicated to like a horror vibe and less. So this is where he references a horror movie. I think like the chase of the Nazgul and the first half of fellowship would be another one. I would vaguely yeah. um, call like as a true horror sequence. Um, if the paths of the dead didn't really suck, that might be another <laughs> one I might refer to as a somewhat horror sequence. Yeah. So it's like, I see his references in other places and like you're dead on that like Helm's Deep is pretty much Army of Darkness and Poltergeist is mentioned here in the scene we're going to talk about. But like where I'm really measuring Jackson's like where he's trying to pay respect to the horror genre is more in those like extended sequences specifically focused on. I think Shelob's Cave is, I would say, the best example of it yeah. um, because that's shot and cut like a horror movie more so than any other part of these films. Yeah, and I guess this kind of like genre bending approach to The Lord of the Rings, which is like necessary, I guess, in these epic movies, is, is like horror movies have always had to deal with this. Like horror movies have never, there's not like, a single prescription for what a horror movie is or what horror is because horror necessarily has to draw from so many other things. Um, and so you get like, you know, action horror, horror comedy, dramatic horror, all of, all of these kind of different, um, uh, like synthesis, syntheses of, of horror to make up horror as a genre. And I think in that there are these lessons learned by these directors. And um, one of the things that I think is worth kind of twigging is that like Peter Jackson's kind of near obsession with like tension in the narrative narrative tension is a is a horror director's lesson um it is horror especially in the 70s and 80s was obsessed with tension as the the sort of sole driving force of a narrative um and so when he takes makes certain choices to amp up like for example everything with the <laughs> the Faramir plot where he makes these certain <laughs> choices to like ramp up the tension um it it kind of makes me ask the question because i think you know I, even though i've just done it here and said oh all 70s and 80s horror was obsessed with this like certain kinds of 70s and 80s horror was obsessed with this you know there's the kubrick sort of element um but but the the kind of tension ad nauseum tension to the 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 point of costing uh the the story or the movie itself was definitely one of those kind of um, not totally incorrect slanders of um, B-rate horror movies. Um, and, and a lot of the kind of schlockier horror, uh, the stuff that we will not even to this day like recanonize is actually good, um, tended to be the, those kind of movies that focused on tension um, without kind of regard for uh, the, the pacing of the narrative or the resolution of the tension. And I think that's a kind of fault of Peter Jackson's that um, is definitely informed by his being a horror director and having come of age in that genre that seeps into the Lord of the Rings, um, and yet doesn't um, ring as a problem in, for example, any of Sam Raimi's movies, um, Evil Dead uh, and Army of Darkness, I think, chief among those, you know, there's never tension for the sake of tension. There's always a, a kind of clear sense of what is happening in the narrative and why, and you don't get the kind of the monstrosity that is uh, the Paths of the Dead scene uh, sequence, um, because 
uh, directors like Sam Raimi have learned that, you know, a genre like horror, you're already going to be starting from a deficit or a respect deficit. And so you have to be super tight and you have to pace your shit very well. And, and it makes me wonder, you know, why if Peter Jackson was so sort of embedded in this, this genre, why did he take, like, what lessons did he take and why was it those lessons instead of the other lessons? Um, and that's the thing that I like, I feel like I need a new variation of the, the appendices, the, the, the behind the scenes reels where Peter Jackson just like explains what and why. <laughs> the hills and not so far away, under the shadow of the Mountains of Shadow, and dwarfing Ministereth in the distance, we see Osgiliath. In a moment of spontaneous coolness, the rangers break out in song. London's burning! London's burning! But Frodo, who is obviously more of a disco man, won't take part. The ring won't save Gondor, he says, looking like he's auditioning for a spot in an all-American train-spotting remake. He pleads with Faramir to let him go, for the ring only has power to destroy. Mercifully, we cut to the last march of the Ents, keeping me from getting too fucking annoyed about this entire subplot. For now. After some of the greatest cinema ever made, we cut to some of the worst. Gollum pants and is forced along the rubbled steering ground, much like those freaks online who put their cats in leashes, and Frodo and Sam are escorted through a city that is oddly reminiscent of Vietnam in Full Metal Jacket. Imagine, if you will, that instead of Howard Shore's score here, we had something a little different. If you can't yet tell by the density of irrelevant sound clips in the summary, I'm trying really, really, really hard not to talk about this scene. There's some fighting on the river. There's some fighting in the city. There's some fighting fuck knows where else, which is actually one of my favorite Churchill speeches. Frodo continues to have a bad time. Sauron's almost finished his game of Where's Wally, and Frodo, regrettably, is Wally. And then a guy who is not Faramir, and is presumably the man actually in charge here, since it's abundantly clear Faramir isn't, announces that the orcs have taken the eastern shore. And their numbers are too great. I wish you could all see the vein pulsing in my forehead right now as we gear up for one of the best moments in this movie. Take them to my father. Tell him Faramir sends a mighty gift. A weapon that will change our fortunes in this war. To which I say... Look at how they massacred my boy! Sam, growing more into the hero he always was with every passing second, fights back. You want to know what happened to your brother? He cries at Faramir. He fucked around and found out. <laughs> There's 
Little time for more chat as an enormous boulder collides with one of Osgiliath's remaining towers, crumbling it like a gingerbread house. A smarter podcast might make a Freud reference here, but I am dumb and staying that way. Frodo enters a trance, and the camera glides and twists, smoothly but unsteadily, going full Kubrick stare in time for Frodo to announce. They're here. It's Drone City, bitch. 10, 20, Black Rider's <laughs> <laughs> oh no you gotta finish the oh, line you gotta I'm finish gonna the line it. it's oh my god it's drone city bitch 1020 black riders on my ruined city bitch oh boy i'm going to hell for that one uh cool well that's mortifying anyways more excellent cg physical model work here as we get our second set of sweeping shots of the pelinor fields not quite foreshadowing what is to come but a reminder of how close sauron's fellows have gotten to Minas Tirith and how perilous the situation truly is faramir hollers take cover about the only sensible thing he said all movie and we are mercifully taken back to the boys of the rohan brigade So just a note for our listeners out there, if you did not hear the phrase, it's drone city, bitch, 1020 black writers on my ruined city, bitch, that means Emily was a coward and edited out her line from the recording after we made it. I am not letting you uh, get past this one. <laughs> uh, that's fair enough. This is my cross to bear now. <laughs> uh, okay, that that was great. That. Uh, that was great. That was actually possibly better than what actually happens in the film for the scenes we're covering. <laughs> Our story takes us to Osgiliath now for the resolution of Frodo's story for this film. Osgiliath will be a part of the opening skirmishes ahead of Pelennor Field in Return of the King, a staging and command outpost as used in these films. It was the first capital city in Gondor and once held a Palantir, all of which I'll let Emily get to at some point. Asgiliath rests on the Anduin River, acting as a crossing point from Pelennor Fields and Minas Tirith on its, on its western side to Ithilien and Minas Morgul to the east. Asgiliath was mostly shot on a back lot. A couple giant sets were built for Asgiliath so they can utilize natural light since it's all outdoors. Several city blocks or spaces were built, mostly for the battle in Return of the King, but for these scenes here as well. They repurposed materials from sets they no longer needed, such as from Meduseld and Helm's Deep, and were able to use cracks and weeds to heighten the disrepair and make it look different from those other settings. As inspiration for the damaged skyline and buildings, the art directors looked at London during the Blitz, as well as Berlin, 1945. The goal was to create a city that had been ruined by bombardment, not time, not something that fell apart due to neglect, but due to actual attack and attacks within recent history relative to, like, the many thousands of years of Tolkien history. Yeah, okay. Uh, so I feel like on this podcast, I don't often say that, like, I don't often say that decisions made by the art departments are wrong. I tend to say that, like, adaptation choices are wrong. I think this choice was wrong. I think this choice was wrong, and and missing the point 
of Oz Gilliath. And I think this is also really good insight into how they've just totally missed the point of Gondor um, writ large in, in these movies. And we're really starting to get into it here. But knowing that it, they'd based it on uh, London post blitz and then and then Berlin post carpet bombing, I think is 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 really valuable proof that they just kind of whiffed it on this. Um, we'll we'll do the the Oz Gilliath history later, but um, one of the key points of Oz Gilliath as a city is that it has been lying in disrepair for centuries because it represents the fall of Gondor. Um, not the sudden fall of Gondor under the, the stewardship, literally, of one man, but the fall of Gondor for the hundreds of years, the 969 years since the kings fell away, the, the, since the line of Anarion ended and Gondor was without king. Um, and, and there is no suddenness to the decay in Gondor. Um, Gondor has not gotten drastically worse in the last 20 years. Um, the fact of Sauron now beating down their fucking doorstep sucks for them, but it is not out of the norm. I mean, they, they lost Athelion some 60, 80 years prior in, in the clearances when Sauron kind of uh, arrived back in, in Mount Doom uh, to took up residence from his previous tenants uh, in, in Mount Doom, um, or in Baradur, rather. Um, and, and uh, you know, Athelion had been gone for ages. That's a solid fifth of all of Gondor's land, had, had just been gone for 80 years, um, which is longer than the lifespan of most of the men of Gondor. Um, but the the Harandor, south of Athelion, had been lost for hundreds of years. Um, and and before it was lost, it was debated land. Um, and, and it wasn't super clear who of Gondor or the Higher Dream in the south actually held Harandor. Um, there is all of Dol Amroth was was sort of harried by uh, by pirates and mercenaries and sailors, maritime uh, maritime thieves, criminals. I don't know why the fuck I just say it like that, but we're going to roll with that one. Um, you know, Gondor has been in a state of decay for uh, a thousand years. Uh, if you live in, in the UK, that is pretty much since the invasion of 1066. That is longer than any country on earth has been a singular unit. So this is how long Gondor has been in decay. Osgiliath is the epitome of this. It is the, the capital city that they lost, and they didn't lose it due to uh, combat, due to, to, to war and, and, and conquest. They lost it because of a plague. And they fled the city because of a plague and internal civil war, civil strife. Um, and, and that is crucial to understanding Gondor, um, because not only is Gondor sort of pressed in upon by Sauron uh, in the east, uh, the shadow in the east, but, but Gondor has also fallen astray of its initial sort of glorious purpose through the sort of general folly of man, the general political folly of man. And it is things both both um, human and natural, i.e. plague, that have brought about the, the fall of of Gondor, the decay of Gondor. Um, and Osgiliath is meant to represent this. Minas Tirith is meant to be the, the, the city under permanent siege that shines brightly against uh, the darkness in, in the east. But Osgiliath is meant to be the, the sort of sad, tragic, um, broken underbelly of Gondor that represents what Gondor actually is. And I think making it something that was just bombed out recently ain't it. Like that that just ain't it. That is too recent and it, it casts too much blame on one individual or gr group of individuals in Gondor's recent history. So among the art directors that Emily is dunking on <laughs> is Alan Lee, who did the major art design here, providing aerial drawings that show the two sides of the river with its own fortifications and a long stone bridge spanning the river with an island with some buildings in the middle that the bridge had a basin. On this middle island is where the Dome of Stars, or what's left of it, was worked into the conceptual design. 
They also played with the waterline of the river, having water splash up against the limited sets to make it seem like the city was slowly being flooded as its levees were neglected. Yep, that's a good bit. Uh, it's a good call. It's also, um, uh, Tolkien wrote a letter from when he was in Venice or had recently traveled to Venice and and, and specifically twigged uh, Venice as being inspiration or a, a place where he saw lots of what he intended for Gondor uh, in the architecture and in the urban planning. So great call on there. Can't be mad about that one. <laughs> Uh, the city is depicted as gray stonework of bricks and domes that is of a piece with what we'll see with Minas Tirith, but whereas Minas Tirith feels like it has bright, sharp edges, Osgiliath feels softer, duller, and rounder in design. Some of that may be that the city has fallen into ruin, how it's not really a city anymore, just a military outpost. It has been ad- abandoned for 500-ish years by the time of our story, as Emily just went over, um, and that's more in terms of civilian inhabitants. In its glory days, it supposedly bustled with boats and ships and featured a great stone bridge for crossing the river, the one I described Alan Lee designed. The Palantir was stored in the Dome of Stars, and apparently this Palantir was the biggest of its sister stones and supposedly could be used to wiretap other Palantir Mm -hmm. um, or listen in on the conversations, I guess is how they would say it. Uh, The name Osgiliath is Sindarin for Citadel of the Stars or Host of the Stars, I've also seen some places translated as Citadel of the Host of the Stars, which just feels like too much of a mouthful for me. Yep. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, yeah, so so Osgiliath is like, I'll get into more of the history later, but like the 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 symbolism of Osgiliath to what Gondor is as a as a state cannot be cannot be overstated. Uh, it is it is so important that that Osgiliath is gets its due for understanding Gondor. Um Osgiliath was established by Isildur and Anarion, um, and its name as, as, you know, Citadel of the Stars or, or Host of the Stars, I tend to prefer Citadel of the Stars, um, is important. Um, Anarion draws his name from the sun, uh, Anar, Anar, and, and Sindarin, and Isildur draws his name from the Sindarin word for the for moon. Actually, it's a Quenya word for moon, Isil, and, and Sindarin, it's Ethil, uh, which is where you get Ethelion, uh, and the land around um, uh, the Minas Tirith uh, to the uh, shit, west of Minas Tirith is uh, called Anorian. <laughs> I can, years of this, I still can't get it right. Uh, so the land to the east of Minas Tirith uh, is Athelion, and the land to the west is uh, Anorian, and those are the Moonland and the Sunland, respectively, and they are in the middle, um, sort of tied in a little bow by Osgiliath, which is the city of the host of the stars. Um, and I can't believe I've just let that one happen there, it is the citadel of the stars. It's just because it's in front of my face. Um, and and this is where Anorian and Isildur jointly ruled uh, the kingdom of Gondor and Arnor. Um, and they were both kings um, and of of this, or princes, I guess, and then laterally both kings of, of this joint kingdom. And they ruled it from Osgiliath. Um, and so the star point being the central kind of breach, or not breach, but, but, but joint between not just in Gondor, the land of the sun and the land of the moon, but also the two kingdoms as well, and the two brothers, is is really, really integral for, for understanding that not only is this a military hinge point of like, unspeakable importance because it is where the, the 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 this massive river can be forded um but it is also a political hinge point it is where gondor after the fall not the fall but i i you know after the sort of um well yeah after the fall of numenor um is where gondor and, and arnor reestablish themselves where the men reestablish themselves as a force for moral good and it's falling and 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 gondor and arnor's falling and the men's falling from grace is a is a 
massive fucking cell phone for for these people and and the fact that they have lost the stars lost the clear sight of the stars and also lost the seeing stone um is such a is such like a is a it's this crucial kind of um um foundation for the decay of men and and the the kind of um unyielding tragedy of of gondor as a kingdom so uh these episodes are kind of light on stuff that happens uh, especially since I want to give Sam's speech at the end its own episode, and thus Frodo offering up the ring to the Nazgul doesn't even make it here. The opening part is just an establishing shot of Asgiliath, smoke rising from its ruins. It's a shock to the Gondorian soldiers with Faramir. You can hear disbelief and desperation in their voices. I do actually like the sequencing here. Frodo and Sam step out of Athelion to see the devastation of Asgiliath, and in the next scene, Merry and Pippin and Treebeard will emerge out of Fangorn to see the devastation of Sauron, leading to the last march of the Ents. This is also just about when the Deeping Wall is breached over at Helm's Deep, so this specific moment is the emotional nadir of the final act. Unsurprisingly, I hate it. Uh, nobody could have possibly expected any different from me, but I, I think this is, again, like the total misunderstanding of, of Gondor from these productions, um, which is the the problem of Gondor is not that it has been too lazy or too in. Well, okay, it's kind of that it's been too inward looking, but it's not that it's been too lazy or too incompetent or too uncaring. Um, the problem of Gondor is that the evil that is Sauron is un- insurmountable, even by the most ruthlessly competent military actors, and even by the most most ruthlessly good people. Um, and and Faramir and his men being shocked at Osgiliath falling apart in front of their very eyes is again one of these things where I'm like, but you don't get the point of of the tragedy of Gondor and you don't get the point of the tragedy of Faramir, which is in the books. He's on top of this shit. The the, the fact that Osgiliath is getting attacked is no surprise to him. Um, it's no surprise to the Rangers. It's no surprise to Gondor. They, of course, know that this massive um, strategic uh, point is going to be under attack. Um, and, and also they are fighting a very good fight. They are holding. They hold Osgiliath for days under a full under full siege conditions, and it is only at literally the eleventh hour that they are forced to give it up. Um, but they are ruthlessly competent in doing so, and 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 by keeping Osgiliath at least the western side of Osgiliath protected for as long as they are, they are keeping the road open for help to come through. And this is crucial because it means that no matter how good they are militarily, no matter how many things they do right, no matter how good and honest and caring they are, they can't win without the ring being destroyed. And 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 this is where I think Peter Jackson's kind of obsession with tension, 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 tension in every moment falls apart a bit because I think this should have been used as a moment to to really enforce upon Frodo the tragedy of what he has to do and again reiterate the importance of it. And this could have been a very good way of viscerally showing that because Faramir could be this ultra-competent figure as he is in the books and all of the Rangers of Athelion could be as nigh superheroic as, as they are and yet they are still losing. And that would show to Frodo that he can't fuck this up. He can't fuck this up because better, smarter, and stronger men than him are failing, and he is the one who has been tasked with with this quest. And I think instead, it's just like, Faramir looks fucking incompetent because he doesn't know what's going on in his own backyard and has to have some random fucking nobody tell him. The rangers look like morons because they've just been like camping out fighting like one elephant when there's like 10 elephants and a fucking nuclear bomb going off in Osgiliath. And then we just lose all sight of like the geography of what's going on. It's not clear like who's fighting from what side. If 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 
we as the rangers with the rangers are approaching from the east then then how is it that they cross over to the west and if they managed to cross over to the west then like did they really need to go via Ithilien and 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 Hanathanin at all like what's going on here i think this is just the kind of nexus point at which all of the gondor stuff just totally fucking falls apart <laughs> Um, I can't say I disagree with any of that, but I can also say, like, watching these movies for the first time, none of that really sticks out. Everything that's kind of working at this point felt like it was in sync with each other. Yeah. Um, so I, it's just like, yeah, I get, I get that criticism, but it's, I can't say it's, I earnestly ever had that one, no. if that makes sense. No, nobody should ever have these opinions that I have. This is a sign of, like, like, long-term and, like, unfixable brain damage like this is this is not a good position to be in <laughs> yeah and I, i'm really really just letting emily get it all out here because i will not brook any kind of dissent when we get to the last ride out of helm's deep <laughs> next week um she's gonna have to be positive or i'm gonna pull her mic or possibly uh, i guess i shouldn't wish violence on you that would be uncouth of me it would be uh, warranted <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just teasing. I'm just teasing. But no, I think that's absolutely a fair. I, I I don't think there's anyone who really, really who's read the books can say that Gondor got really a fair shake in any of this oh. or was properly adapted or uh, meaningfully adapted uh, representative of the book stuff. Um, I think just for me, my own apologetics have just said they just for the story they Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens was telling Gondor was just not an important part of what they thought was important to their yep. version of the story. Yep. Um, and that can definitely be criticized. I'm not saying that as like, so don't say anything about it. It's just like, it is very clear that this was, this is a choice. This isn't just like, oh, it kind of came out like this. Yeah. Uh, we put, you know, Elijah Wood and David Wenham in a blender and this is what came out. <laughs> um, this is, <laughs> although it, Emily might want to actually do that after these scenes. So I guess I shouldn't put the those bowl. ideas in her. <laughs> smoothie bowl of Oh God. That's what I should have named this. Uh, this. <laughs> Oh, this is one of our best episodes yet. Oh, I'm so happy. Boy. Okay, actually, I have to air my other stupid thought here, right? So, okay. Yeah, so, just do like, it. Get, <laughs> let's go. In my mind, right, <laughs> Australia and New Zealand are the same thing. And actually, now that I say this, I'm really worried that Mad Max is Kiwi. No, it's definitely Australian. I think they should have just gone full fucking Mad Max in these scenes. And I think they should have, like, made the, the like the central figures of the Osgiliath scenes be the orcs and just show them going fucking hog wild. Like, I want to see, like, like Nicholas Holt in Fury Road. I want to see... No, not Nicholas Holt. It's definitely not Nicholas Holt. Whoever the, like, it's, guy... It is it, Nicholas Holt. Like, it is Nicholas... No, the guy it, who's the, on the like, guitar the, with, the, like, he's playing the flame Oh, the he's not the guitar. Yeah, yeah. If it were Nicholas Usually Holt, you're just so delighted. way off base with the actor and movie <laughs> that you actually got the actor in the correct movie, so I assumed you were on point. <laughs> no, no. I could never be that, that, that on point. Um... <laughs> yeah, I just want to see like a fucking orc going absolutely ham on Osgiliath, like swinging side to side with like a flaming like archery set or whatever bow and arrow. <laughs> and like, I think that would have been a great way to like impress and build the like overall like the meta tension of the overall story by being like, okay, the orcs are getting their ass kicked at Helm's Deep. Well, not yet, but they're about to. But Osgiliath, not only are they running wild, but like they're doing stupid shit because they've got so much time and are so confident. And that I think would be a much better way of building up like everything that's to come at the Pelennor Fields instead of like Faramir's a fucking idiot. They get owned by the Nazgul. Frodo comes in his pants and, you know. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, 
if they were going to do that Harvey Weinstein Gothmog orc anyways in Return of the King, um, they might as well have just brought him in here, you know? Yeah. Um, or yeah. at least set up like a, like a mini boss to use a video game parlance. Just like set him up here and then he can like, I don't know, cross swords with Faramir at the beginning of Return of the King. You could, you could do something that's a little more something, yeah. I guess. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I definitely think there's a lot of room for improvement here. Yeah. So, Frodo, looking upon the mighty works of Sauron and despairing, tells Faramir that the ring will not save Gondor, and Faramir looks super concerned. <laughs> you should really feel the concern. No, I'm kind of serious here. There is a look of terror on at first on Faramir's face, and maybe this is Faramir having a bit of a revelation on what the ring will actually do to Gondor, um, tying it to the destruction of Asgiliath that he's witnessing. Um, happy that I am able to just pull a little bit of that from a few seconds of David Wenham's face, but we're still missing all the good Faramir stuff that should have been, you know, adapted or warped in some fashion for these movies. So ultimately, Faramir leads his men on in spite of Frodo's protests, and Sam just watches, waiting for his moment to speak up. Once inside the city, I start getting confused what side of the river Faramir is on, just like Emily said. They are coming from the east, but it would make more sense if they are on the western side, the Gondor side, which would be reinforced with Gondor soldiers, like where they appear to be. I only bring this up because they are clearly fighting across two sides of the river, using projectile and ranged weapons until the Nazgul B-2 bombers arrive. <laughs> it's, oh my god, I'm so sorry, but it's some of the laziest extra work I've ever seen in a war movie. I know this is, like, really just establishing what new war movies would be like, but, like, the guys who are, like, archers all along the river are like, okay, you can you can literally count to, like, eight-beat count. You can watch them go, okay, counts one and two, we're behind the pillar, counts three and four, we're drawing our bow, and counts four, or, like, counts five and six were shooting count seven and eight back in and you can watch them do it like like they're fucking npcs but like at least the alatro npcs have like a much bigger like range of motion and things <laughs> they need to do so it doesn't seem as repetitive it's like a three second like scanning shot of these guys firing across the river and you can watch the repetition happen and and i just like again like it wouldn't drive me as crazy as it does, if it weren't so emblematic of how little kind of care and thought went into the Gondor plot generally, like if this were in the if this were literally in Helm's Deep, I would not bat an eye at it because it'd be like okay, cool, whatever. The rest of Helm's Deep is perfect, so so who cares? But it's like this is just like shit stacked on shit, and it does kind of look like a backlot. Not that there's anything wrong with filming on a backlot, but like you can tell that there wasn't the same kind of care and thought put into this set or into the any of the sort of choreography blocking that we see, and there's just like. It's such a kind of confluence of all of these things. And I think it's really funny that the river is massive and these guys are shooting these bow and arrows and they are not nearly jacked enough <laughs> as they would need to be to be able to shoot across like a half mile long river. It's all just like so many things stacked upon one on top. Like, why not just use a ballista? Come on. Surely the God Dream had a ballista. Uh, when Emily's lamenting the lack of good action chore choreography here, <laughs> she means she wanted to see Faramir shield surf as well. Please, um, absolutely. Sadly, he does not. Actually, that would easily be the best thing Faramir does in this movie, so they absolutely <laughs> should do that. But speaking of artillery, I do like that one upshot at the tower that gets demolished by a rock catapulted over the river. Um, I, that legitimately counts as a highlight for the stretch of scenes we're talking about today, that one rock. Yes, it does. Uh, it absolutely does. And I wish there were like more. I just like I kind of sometimes wish that like 
this movie, it, this movie knows when to pump itself up to 11. And sometimes I just wish it went slightly more pumping itself up to 11. Cause I think there's a great Freudian read here where like Faramir is having his soul crushed. And then there's this massive phallic tower that literally just gets fucking obliterated above his head. And I think like a funnier filmmaker, not to say that Peter Jackson isn't funny, but I think a, a funnier and slightly more callous and slightly more like devil may care filmmaker would have made something more of the like Freudian implications of that. And just like literally have been like, yes, this dude is like getting his like spiritual dick crushed by a massive boulder in front of these little fucking hobbit freaks who are just owning him repeatedly and not that peter jackson is required by any means to uh do freudian dick jokes um in anything ever at any point in his life however it's one of these things where i think i've had too much time to think about these scenes by virtue of just like trying to survive them every time i have to watch them that i'm now like oh haha that building is indeed a cock wouldn't it be funny if it just got destroyed <laughs> One thing I do like is Frodo telling Sam the ring is taking him, that it's calling to him, and then Sam likely replying in a comforting way, but Frodo isn't able to hear it. Not because of the din of battle or men scurrying about, but because the ring is throwing his senses out of whack, something the ring does in the text but doesn't get as much play in these films and does it in a slightly different manner. It feels of a piece with Frodo losing his hunger or being unable to sleep. The thing that... the things that tie us to this real material world that define human sensory experience are slipping away from him. This all leads into his ensorcelled lines about the Nazgul arriving and his deepening ties to the Twilight realm. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the, the kind of Nazgul Twilight stuff, um, because that is the only other or those are the only other sequences in these films where what we are seeing on screen is more of a reference to a sensation than it is to literal fact. Um, these movies are very, very fact based. Um, we've talked about this before, but like anything that is on camera is true. Um, and and they don't tend to reach into the sort of um, uh, not surreal, but but the sort of inarticulable. The, the camera is never doing anything to to try and make you understand something inarticulable. It is showing you things that are on screen and other things, acting or script work or 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 occasionally some set design are trying to make you understand the inarticulable, the sublime almost. But but rarely ever is the camera doing this, and except for in these sequences, uh, like with the Witch King on uh, on Weathertop, and like here, um, where the camera work is actually lending itself, the camera choreography is actually lending itself to a feeling that um, that Frodo is feeling, but the world itself is not actually swaying side to side to side to side. Um, but the camera is for, for once in, in one of these rare instances, um, doing that to, to kind of further this feel feeling of unreality in a way that it does not often do in these movies. Then at that point, Faramir meets with Madril, a very important character, Madril, <laughs> uh, who we all know and love Madril. And apparently he's the one holding the garrison um, because that's who Faramir says he's sending Frodo and Sam and Gollum onto his father at Minas Tirith. A mighty gift, he calls it, which takes me back to Boromir, also calling the ring a gift at the Council of Elrond. But Sam, knowing what to think of men who call the ring a gift, finally speaks up. Do you know why your brother died? He tried to take the ring from Frodo, which I guess someone should have just told Faramir that earlier. (laughs) Who's to say? (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is like the biblification of Faramir by the coward Peter Jackson. But like... Think about this, the way that Faramir figures out Boromir's death in the books is he literally goes, 
All right, Frodo, you have a Sildur's Bane, and this is exactly how he says it. I'm doing this verbatim here. Um, Frodo, you've got a Sildur's Bane. That's fucking wild. Uh, hey, also, my brother is dead, and Frodo gives him a dead-eyed stare, and Faramir immediately goes, ah, yeah, so Boromir tried to steal that shit off of you, and then he got fucking killed for his efforts. And then Frodo has a bit of a quaking meltdown about it. That's how it goes in the books. He figures that out himself. He figures that out himself after about five minutes of chatting to Frodo and Sam. Neither Frodo nor Sam has to really, like, tell him that. Because he's a smart guy and because he's a guy who knows what his fucking dipshit brother is like, was like, RIP, ask in the chat. Um, and, and I think that is, like, taking that level of emotional intelligence away from Faramir um, is, as I've already said ad nauseum, like, really annoying. But I also think it's, like, this is a scene where... If you wanted to go, oh, morally dubious or morally un, un sort of pinnable Faramir, you could have had him learn that Boromir's death was caused by Boromir fucking around finding out mm -hmm. and then had him dwell on that and have that threat be lingering above Faramir's head. And by the time we get to Osgiliath, if you insist on doing it this way, have him come to actually realize what that means and that he is in fact not better than Boromir in this regard and not stronger than Boromir in, in this regard and the way that he can actually best his brother or or surpass his brother is by making the difficult choice that Boromir could not make and instead it's just like Faramir didn't know that his brother got owned because apparently he didn't know what his brother was like and also just didn't bother having this conversation with these little imp freaks. Uh, and then finding out is somehow the way forward here. And it just, none of it really feels either internally consistent within the movie or consistent with Faramir has written in the books. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, I feel like they could do just a lot more with, oh, hey, I brought Frodo into this former city of Gondor and all of a sudden Nazgul are attacking us. I wonder what that means. I wonder if I should send this guy to Minas Tirith because <laughs> I wonder what the Nazgul will do then. Um, it's just like, I feel like th even though I don't love the adaptation choice of going to Asgiliath, I think there's a way to do it that doesn't really change either the trajectory of the overall saga, but also gets us a little more of some of the better stuff from book four of The Lord of the Rings. Yep. So um, anyways, <laughs> Faramir has little time to take in Sam's revelation as Frodo starts being a weird little guy. <laughs> the score drops out to some foreboding bass notes as Dutch angles and a kinetic camera slowly zoom in on Frodo's face, fully entranced. These are some great faces from Elijah Wood. He looks like he's about to orgasm something evil. <laughs> he, he hisses out, they've come. They're here. Oh, no. And all eyes turn towards the sky as a shriek fills the air. <laughs> oh, horrifying image. Thank you. Um, yeah, Poltergeist. Everybody's seen Poltergeist. We all love that movie, Poltergeist. Um, I think it's really funny, though, to have uh, Frodo just kind of be a Chandler of this. A Chandler, not Chandler Bing. Because, <laughs> um, like, that is kind of the little girl's whole shtick in the Poltergeist. She's just like a child who's not really like actively doing anything it's just bad vibes come through her and it's funny to do that to frodo here because this is probably the moment in in his story when he has the most amount of agency he will ever have because from here on out he's just fucked he's just running headlong towards inevitability and he can't really get out and and this is kind of his last 
couple moments of choosing. So having him just be like the bad guy radar is quite funny. And I also think like there's something really strange to me about like the line read because it's a good line read. It is a really good line read. But unfortunately, there's a bit in the X-Files where Gillian Anderson as Scully does a they're here bit. <laughs> it sounds exactly <laughs> like Elijah Wood doing it. And I think like the, the X-Files episode was released like dead ass a year before they started filming this. So every time I watch this, I just like it, my mind like deep fakes Gillian Anderson's face onto Frodo here and ruins the scene. <laughs> Oh, oh, okay. I, and now I need to watch that episode. That's files. So good. Um, oh God! And now I got a dumb portmanteau stuck in my head that Frodo has ring radar. Oh, so like nice. radar for the ring wraiths. So, nice. Uh, maybe when we get to the meanest Morgul episodes, I'll try that one out and pretend I didn't say it on this episode, so everyone <laughs> thinks I make a funny joke. Um, I guess I'm calling that recap. Apparently. <sighs> Anyways, so after that, David Wenham gives my favorite Faramir line delivery all series. Him just yelling, Nazgul! <laughs> we see the Black Rider swoop down on his fell beast with Minas Tirith and the Pelennor Fields backdropping the shots as he swoops down over the ruined city. And there isn't much else to these scenes. Even Gollum is a non-presence at Osgiliath. Literally the first time all movie, he isn't stealing scenes he's in. Well... We'll resolve this plot thread in a couple of episodes and speak to him more then. Yeah, I mean, this is like, I think the fact that Gollum is just like such a non-entity here, I think speaks to the like overall weirdness of these scenes. Um, because like, I really do feel like this whole sequence was built in service of that one poltergeist reference. Um, and, I, and I think that kind of shines through in the fact that Gollum is just kind of fucking around, not doing anything. And, you know, we chatted in the, the Hedathanan scenes about how, like, how good of a move it actually was to restructure those scenes to give Gollum more time to shine. And, and I think that is a kind of indicator of when they are making a good adaptation choice, they, they, they tend to give Gollum more time to just dance around like a little weirdo in the middle of the screen. And, and whenever that happens, it's always a very solid adaptation choice and an almost not unimpeachable one, although I will, of course, do my best to, to malign it. Um, and I think the fact here that like Gollum's just hanging around, not really doing anything, Frodo's whole thing is just building up to one line that like doesn't really matter. Um, I think that just kind of shows a bit of this, what I'm trying to get at with like, why are we so concerned with these like references to Poltergeist instead of with doing something that's a little tighter and a little more significant? And I and I, it's just that kind of unfortunate phrasing about to come out here, but like the limpness of Gollum, I think is the kind of bellwether in a way for like the overall quality of a scene in these last two movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, feel free to go take a drink break if you need to, because I'm going to talk about the Marvel movies for a second here. <laughs> um, I legitimately think that uh, Rocket Raccoon is maybe the best character in the MCU. Um, I think it's Bradley Cooper's best performance, at least the one that I've seen of his. <laughs> oh my God, I forgot. Uh, but uh, the thing, like, in those two Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and then again when he shows up in the uh, final Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame, like, when Rocket's on screen, he's, like, dope. Like, he's either, like, witty, or he's having a really touching moment with Thor, or Yandu, or he's just, like, always a good character. 
And then he shows up in Thor Love and Thunder from last summer. And he is just like so not present there that it just reminds me of this. This is Gollum and Eskeliath is entirely what that whole Guardians of the Galaxy scene in Thor Love and Thunder is. It's like, here's a bunch of cool guys and we're not going to focus in the, on them at all. And we're going to do some boring, ugly looking garbage. <laughs> um, and, you know, please give us your money. So um, I know that analogy might not make sense for a lot of people, but uh, for the few, like five of you who get that, um, I love you, I guess. <laughs> oh, okay, that came out really weird. <laughs> but uh, I guess we've been kind of down on these scenes more than usual. And even for me, I'm pretty down on this. But I, I actually don't really mind. Um, it's more that I'm upset that there's more stuff to pull from the books and I'm sad for Emily <laughs> um, because she doesn't see any of her favorite parts or characters adapted well or at all, I, I should say. Um, but I think uh, like especially the first dozen times I watched this movie, I just wanted to get back to Helm's Deep yeah. or Isengard. Like everything else going on is so interesting. I was okay with perfunctory plot beats before hopping back to other threads. Yeah. It also offers just a little bit of narrative balance to Return of the King, which is going to be so Sam and Frodo heavy, even to the point where the titular returning king disappears from his own movie for a good portion of it. And the entire end of the series is so Sam and Frodo focused that I kind of felt like this was okay to kind of focus on the other theaters of war and the other characters for just this movie's ending. It was a city, said Baragond, the chief city of Gondor, of which this was only a fortress. For that is the ruin of Asgiliath on either side of Anduin, which our enemies took and burned long ago. Yet we won it back in the days of the youth of Denethor, not to dwell in, but to hold as an outpost, and to rebuild the bridge for the passage of our arms. Oh, oh, what, what, what's that? It was reclaimed in the days of Denethor? You mean that Denethor is actually strategically sound and was capable of doing better than all the fucking 10 million <laughs> stewards who came before him? Fascinating. Uh, yes. Yeah, cool. Uh, fuck the Denethor haters. He's a king. Um, I've alluded to the history of Osgiliath like, in bits and pieces uh, throughout here, but but like I have a problem with my brain, and that problem is, like, Gondor. Um, and I love the history of Gondor. I think it's so beautifully crafted. And I love the geography of Gondor because I think it's so so wonderfully revealing about the the, the kingdom that is uh, Gondor and occasionally Arnorf, but fuck those guys. Um, so <laughs> Osgiliath, as I, like, briefly said up top, is uh, is a city that was founded uh, um, by uh, uh, <laughs> Mother God, Anarion, and Isildur. I don't know why I went through, like, 10 million names I was like, Anorian, no, Anor, no, Arnor, no, Anarian, uh, Anisildur, uh, as their sort of joint ruling spot. It is their Washington, D.C. Um, it is a strategic uh, and, and, uh, and, and cultural site of import, not only because it links uh, both the eastern and western halves of, of Gondor, um, but also because uh, the gap between the White Mountains uh, that end in the west uh, and, and into which Minas Tirith is, is built 
and the banks of, of Anduin, the River Anduin, is only about 11 miles wide. So being able to police and maintain the integrity of that gap is how Gondor, the northern parts of Gondor, and, and of course Arnor when it was still functional, are able to keep in touch with the massive landmass that is the southern part of Gondor, which is in, in the in the latter days of the Third Age during the Ring War accounts for like 90% of Gondor's population and like something like 85% of its land. So keeping that 11 mile gap policed and open was absolutely critical for, for the economic, social, political, military well-being of, of Gondor and occasionally Arnor. Um, Gondor, or Gondor as like a as a kingdom it, it is kind of interesting because um, although uh, it, it claims its legacy as as uh, the sort of um, colonial entity of the 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 men of Numenor, the the faithful, the Numenorian faithful who came over with um, Elendil, Isildur, and Anarion, um, Gondor was not unpopulated before these guys came over, whereas Arnor was by and large not super populated and didn't have any major population centers. Gondor absolutely did. Um, and, and as Gilead, in classic imperial fashion, was a way for Isildur and Anarion as these conquering uh, kings to establish the might and dominance of their new kingdom. Um, and so not only was it this sort of strategic, um, uh, a site of strategic importance and value, it was also a way for them to basically lay the blueprint for how Gondor and Arnor would be governed under their rule. Um, and so it became this massive city of culture. The Dome of the Stars is um, described as being this sort of site of like unparalleled beauty. When when you imagine it in your heads, even though it's never officially described as such, like I think it helps to imagine the Hagia Sophia. Um, this is the level of grandeur and, and sort of majesty that we are talking about here. This is a this is a really strong imperial statement from these two guys about what Gondor is going to be. Um, these guys fuck up. Uh, the kings fuck up uh, and screw up and refuse to fuck and then die. Uh, and as these things go, and the line of Isildur ends, and then the line of Anarion ends. And 969 years before the start of uh, the well, before the start of the Ring War, um, the stewards take over in 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 Gondor, uh, and the stewards who are wiser uh, than the kings uh, do a fantastic job of bringing in this the sort of auxiliary groups, the non-Numenorian groups that were uh that lived in in Gondor both before and after the the arrival of uh Elendil and Isildur and Anarion. Um and and the the stewards um make what I think we should call a, a good effort to try and keep this as a as a cultural sort of uh hub. But they lose. Uh, they fuck up. Uh and and there's eventually a plague uh that ravages the city, utterly ravages the city. This is not something that any of us now have any experience with at all. Uh, utterly ravages the city and they are forced <laughs> to contract in. Um a, a kind of central point in uh, linchpin in the history of Vosgiliath, though, is something that of course relates to the kings because the kings can't stop fucking up, and it is the kin strife. And the Kinstrife is a civil war that is fought between, and I think uh, we went through the history of this a couple episodes back, possibly in the Fellowship episodes, um, uh, is, is, a, is a civil war that is caused by uh, some folks being mad that uh, one of the kings was fucking around with some northern chick, uh, and that was not good because her people were not Numenorean. Uh, and uh, there's a fellow named Castamir uh, who gets the epithet the usurper appropriately, and he and his sons rise up against uh, uh, Valakar, uh, and they uh, lead this massive internal 
they, they leave this massive civil war that that quite seriously decimates the population of Gondor, but also leads to the ruin of Osgiliath. Um, and so parts of Osgiliath, if you think about it as like the outer 10% of the city, are in, in raw numbers terms, are abandoned uh, and left to ruin. And, and so uh, once the... <laughs> The Castamerian struggle is dealt with, and they are sent fucking fleeing down to Umbar um, and Pelargir. Um, the uh, <laughs> the the internal part of Osgiliath is sort of forced to hobble along for a while, and and this is when once the Narian's line kind of falls apart, uh, and the Stewards take over. The Stewards try and hold this and try and keep it pumped up and keep it going, but they can't do it. Uh, they all move to Minas Tirith and make Minas Tirith their capital, um, and the loss of Osgiliath is a massive problem because it means they have lost two important cities, two important strategic cities. One is uh, Minas Ethel or Minas Morgul, which is in Athelion, and that is the north-south linchpin of Athelion. And then they've lost Osgiliath. And so the, the Stuarts spend like hundreds of years, like 400 years, trying to win back Osgiliath. And they lose and lose and lose and get owned. And there's actually a, a steward, Boromir, who's like... I think he ruled in like 24, 2450. I can't remember the exact date off the top of my head. Uh, he ruled in, in uh, around the 2400s. Uh, he made a very valiant attempt uh, to take back Osgiliath. So valiant an attempt, it was actually said that the witch king of Angmar feared him. So this dude was not a fucking joker. Um, but even he could not take back the city. Um, and it isn't until the time of Denethor that Osgiliath is actually retaken in any sort of sensible use of employment of the term. Um, and so this is, I think, actually a very important scene setter for where Gondor is. So although it has suffered these thousands of years of decay, they have actually had a really recent dub. Um, Denethor is like 80-something by the time we meet him in Lord of the Rings. But there are people alive who would have remembered his having saved uh, Osgiliath. And, and, and certainly we know they would absolutely would have remembered it because they remember Thorongil's exploits. Um, and 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 the retaking of Osgiliath is not so much a sign of victory and a sign of um, hope or optimism, but it is a sign that things are not quite as bad as they have been, and that Denethor is in fact a figure of possible progress, and there might be some sort of way through the darkness that Gondor has lived in for so long, as sort of projected through this city, this lost and ruined city of Osgiliath. Um, and so understanding that that Osgiliath is a city with a thousand years of history and that it was lost for so long and it was also the nexus point of all of this kin strife and struggle and plague. And uh, it was a point at which stewards and kings alike tried to prove their valor and yet there was only one steward who was able to successfully, okay, well, uh, Faramir as well, kind of. Uh, and, you know, one steward who is able to successfully do so. And these, this is the context under which we arrive at Osgiliath. Uh, although we never really arrive at Osgiliath, but we arrive at Osgiliath in absentia in Return of the King. Um, and that is the thing that I think it is most important to come away from <laughs> this with, is that Osgiliath isn't London 1945. It is truly Constantinople. Uh, I'm pretty sure you're lying because none of that is in the movies. <laughs> uh, is Fair there um, any significance to um, Osgiliath having the biggest palantir and what it's meaning? I know it was lost and I know it was big, um, <laughs> but is there anything else to it that you think is really like important? Because um, yeah. I struggled to, because I was just kind of researching it and I didn't really see much beyond that. And I just feel like for it to be described as the biggest and the one that can listen in on other palantir conversations, like 
something must have come of that, but I guess maybe not. Yeah. So, so all of the Palantir can kind of um, listen in on each other. It's kind of easiest to think of them as like a party line, I guess, uh, for people under the age of, I don't know, 50 who don't remember party lines. <laughs> uh, it, it, basically, you could pick up the phone and the phone is always open. The phone line is always open. God, do people even know what phone lines are. Whatever. It's like if there was a Twitter space that was always running and you could always tap in. That's kind of how the Palantir function. Um, and uh, I think the fact of like the grandeur of the 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 Palantir that sat in Osgiliath is less of like a functional thing and more of a status thing. It's it sits with the Sealder and Anarian, and it sits with them because they are the kind of chosen pilgrims who uh, are meant to um, end the plight of men uh, of mankind, and they are the ones who lead this pilgrimage and then establish the, these kingdoms. And and the fact that they have this um, immense seeing stone uh, and and host it in the Dome of the Stars is meant to be a sign of hope. Uh, and so, of course, the fact that it immediately gets dumped in the river and lost all time is also like a uh, oh, we fucked it. <laughs> So before we log off for the day, we would like to thank our $10 patrons and a couple of our $5 patrons. Just a reminder that um, if you sign up at the $10 level, we will read your Middle Earth name given to you by Emily on air at the end of each episode, and we read our $5 patrons on a rotating basis. So today we want to start off by thanking Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothaman of Polinke. And Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal. Maddie Hugh, Idrenor of Kol Kurtad. Nice. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aradwo Minyatara. Zach Newman, a.k.a. Lekwamelme. <laughs> and Cam Lewis, a.k.a. Salkundil. And Jonathan DeHaan, we do want to give you a shout out as well. We are still working on your Middle Earth name. Um, not to uh, play favorites out of the $10 patrons, um, but I do want to mention that Zach Newman uh, joined me and Emmett over at the Not A Cast podcast. Um, it'll probably be a couple weeks past once you actually once you guys get to listen to this. Uh, but if you're interested in listening to Zach uh, play a little bit of guitar, sing a little bit of song, and recite a little bit of Andor, he does that. Um, and I will also be shortly joining Johnny Flores Jr. to talk about Metal Gear one last time. Um, so keep a lookout for that, and I will post that in our Twitter feeds and all that stuff as well. Nice. Anyways, going on to our $5 patrons. This week, we would like to thank Farrowin, a.k.a. Zoe. And Scott Rothman, a.k.a. Harabo of the Cat on Deal, which means cat friend. Mm -hmm. And Scott is one of my cat friends. <laughs> And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content, including a monthly Patreon-exclusive episode. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as J.R.R. Tweedin, which is where you can find me on Twitter, hanging out in the Middle Earth equivalent of Las Vegas, where I will be piloting a Nazgul drone to fucking obliterate Frodo Baggins. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir Andretheon, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
on. I can't believe I read this. <clears throat> I can't either. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. 